Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. Thank you all for joining us today. It's a, a joy to welcome you all and, and especially to welcome uh, our guest, Dr. Therese Lysalt. But before I introduce her, I just want to echo Ben's plug. If you're uh, interested in potentially studying with us or know of someone who may be, we uh, would delight in speaking with you further. Please don't hesitate to reach out. And we have a, a priority application deadline upcoming of April 15th. And uh, we, we'd love to be in conversation with you about that. But uh, without further ado, I want to introduce our esteemed guest today, Dr. Therese Lysalt, who is Professor of Moral Theology and Healthcare at the Nyswanger Institute for Bioethics and Healthcare Leadership at Stritch School of Medicine, Loyola University, Chicago. Her scholarly work is, is really wide-ranging and brings into conversation the fields of theology, medicine, bioethics, and global health. She received her PhD uh, from Duke, and we were just talking about the apocalypse that is upon us, the small matter of a basketball game tomorrow. Uh, uh, Teresa's authored and edited a number of books, including the forthcoming and award-winning Biopolitics After Neuroscience, Morality and the Economy of Virtue. And I also especially want to highlight her work co-editing uh, with Joe Kotva, the third edition of the field-defining text on moral medicine, theological perspectives on medical ethics. Teresa and I were both students of Alan Verhey, she at Hope, and me here at Duke. And Alan and Stephen Lammers co-edited the first two editions of this book. Um, Teresa is a longtime friend of TMC, and her talk today is entitled God versus Mammon, Neuroscience, Economics, and the Biopolitics of Morality. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lysol. Thank you, Brett, and thank you for invoking my ancestor, Alan Verhey. To have Alan in the room with us, that is really wonderful, so thank you. Um, it's always a great gift to be for me to be with the Duke TMC folks. So um, uh, I'm really glad to be here today. Uh, these seminars have been for me a real lifeline through the pandemic. Um, being able to be with you all in a way that right can't be because I live so far away and to do it on a bi, uh, bi-weekly basis has been really great. Uh, and so to come in today batting Batting in the pitcher position for those who are National League fans, uh, I think is a real gift and uh, is appropriate um, for me. So as Brett said today, I'm going to be talking about God v. Mammon, neuroscience, economics, and the biopolitics of morality. My remarks today are gonna to center around my forthcoming book that Brett mentioned, Biopolitics After Neuroscience, Morality, and the Economy of Virtue that I co-authored with physician philosophers, Jeff Bishop and Andy Michael. And I wanna begin with an apology because I rather hate when people present about books that aren't out yet because no one has been able to read them so it's hard to have a real discussion. <clears throat> so I'm not gonna talk about the book per se 100%. Rather, I wanna start by giving a little bit of background about how this project initially came about because we started with some really big questions that then narrowed in their focus over time. And while we honed in on one specific area, the neurosciences, 
I think that the questions we started with still have wider unmapped implications for theological ethics and medicine. So I'm gonna start with those questions. Then I wanna present a few findings from the book that likewise I think have broader relevance for theology, medicine and culture. And I'll close by positing some of those questions at this intersection for our conversation. And let me see if I can run my slides. Oops, oh, okay. uh, all right, so let's start with the backstory. When we embarked on this project in 2009, which was some time ago, I had been wrestling for a while with the dynamics of public rhetoric around virtue and vice. If you think back to 2009, we were coming off the financial debacle of 2007, 2008. Obama had just been elected and Catholics like Paul Ryan were touting Ayn Rand. In the middle of all of this, I kept noticing disturbing language in the public sphere, which was by no means new, but seemed to be increasing in a new way. I'm gonna show that the next slide has some racist language in it. So if people wanna turn off their mics, look away for a slide, uh, I invite you to do that. This passage on this slide from Bill Cunningham on his talk show called The Big Show at the time captures it well, as he said, I cannot say it too often or too many times. Nothing FDR did in the 1930s stopped or alleviated the Great Depression. There's nothing LBJ did in 64, 65, 66 that helped the plight of African-Americans. In fact, it hurt them. Almost all their actions brought about the law of unintended consequences. The goal of model cities, section eight housing and food stamps was to give the poor people money, not understanding that poor people were not and are not poor because they lack money. They're poor because they lack values, ethics, and morals. All that the mid 60s and 70s did to the black community was to pay black fathers money on condition that they not be involved in the lives of their children. And the black mothers were told that if you married, it would have a painful consequence. If on the other hand, you acted irresponsibly, by producing children out of wedlock, you would have a positive consequence because government would fund bad behavior. So since 2009 and more so since 2016, we've seen an exponential increase in this sort of public rhetoric linking poverty and vice layered over with race. These sorts of claims stand in a long tradition that locates the source of economic failure in individual moral failure. Poor people lack morals, not money. The wages of sin, we might say, is to have no wages, or at least to have insufficient income to support oneself and the too many children that one has produced. Cunningham's implicit definition of, quote, values, ethics, and morals is clearly economic with racial and sexual overtones. Virtue by implication, usually tacit implication, but not always so tacit, leads to wealth. Here, hard work and not necessarily sexual restraint, but at least quote, responsible reproduction enables economic production. The film Pursuit of Happiness depicts the life of Chris Gardner, a self-made man who does right by his son, works hard, and in the end reaps the benefit of life in America. I did make this slide prior to the Oscars last weekend, so we can discuss that in the Q&A if you wish. At the same time, 
There's also a history of the opposite claim, that it's not vice that causes poverty, but rather it's poverty and its social structures that cause vice. Early libertarian Lysander Spooner argued in his 1875 pamphlet entitled Vices Are Not Crimes, that economic realities play a role in an agent's ability to acquire and or enact virtue. Poverty, he declaimed, is the natural parent of nearly all the ignorance, vice, crime, and misery there are in the world. For Spooner, poverty caused ignorance and indebtedness. It destroyed self-respect and drove the poor to despair and drink. With echoes of Dickens, Spooner held that poverty and its effects did not primarily derive from individual vice, but rather from social forces outside personal control. Change social circumstances and vice would fade away. Yet both Spooner and his interlocutors presumed a relationship between morality, primarily vice, and economics. But even though, as we discovered in our research, that claims like this have a long history, there was nothing in the literature of academic theological ethics about these sorts of claims, or that looked at these cultural assumptions about economics and virtue and vice. So we wanted to explore this further. Into the mix in 2009 came the PBS series, Unnatural Causes, Is Inequality Making Us Sick? If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. I was and remain taken with the findings they present correlating poverty and economic inequality, not with vice, but with physiological effects, higher levels of cortisol, embedded traumatic responses, and the growing literature on the social determinants of health. This series echoed the findings of Michael Marmot's classic Whitehall study and its longitudinal follow-ups which similarly found correlations between social rank or status and health status as measured by morbidity and mortality. Social structures, these studies claim, have an effect on our biology. Here we entered into a rather murky area. For while we did not want to biologize the preceding economics virtue vice binary, these studies did point to another enormous gap in the virtue literature namely the body. In some ways, the virtue literature is very Gnostic. Virtue theory is largely centered on the will. Bodies are shaped through habituation, okay? So the body's there. But within virtue theory, bodies are generally passive objects of formation, or worse, they're originary sources of vice that animalistic part of our nature that must be corralled, controlled, and disciplined. But what if there's more going on? What are the implications, say, of embodied trauma or constantly elevated cortisol levels that might pre-consciously capacitate someone to say, fight or flight or freeze? How might understanding the influence of the social surround on our bodies help us reassess traditional accounts of the development or deployment of the virtues like say courage or temperance or patience? If my physiology has been primed through an event of trauma or a constant surround of, social, of structural violence, does an Aristotelian account of the habituation of courage or prudence, which clearly presumes a level of economic and social well-being, end up blaming the victim? Does it fail to account for operative factors? So this is where we were 
in 2009, when the University of Chicago issued its call for proposals through its Templeton-funded A New Science of Virtue program. Of the original four-person team, which included at the time your colleague Amy Laura Hall, the three of us were first trained in the sciences. My first degree was in organic chemistry, and then I did a postdoc in uh, Human Genome Project Lab. Jeff Bishop, as some of you know, is an internist, and Andrew Michael is a psychiatrist. Out of that background, all of us had subsequently studied and written about virtue. So for us, this topic of the science of virtue was a very natural intersection. It also seemed like a good opportunity to explore these questions that we were wrestling with. And we hypothesized that the neurosciences would provide data for nuancing and complexifying both popular and scholarly accounts of virtue ethics. So in 2010, we embarked on this project. And I think I can honestly say that like Bilbo Baggins and his company, we did not entirely anticipate where it would take us. We set out with some pretty straightforward aims and methods. Uh, first, to review and analyze neuroscientific studies related to virtue theory and neurobiology, to engage in cultural and critical analysis of recent and contemporary American cultural texts and images of virtue and vice, flourishing and poverty, body and community, to give historical, cultural, social, and philosophical context to neuroscientific investigation while taking the science seriously. And finally, offering critical speculation on the relationship of culture and society to science, politics, and moral theory. But as we waded into this literature, we were immediately struck by a set of assumptions that was framing this growing field of the neuroscience of morality. The first was a pretty straightforward biological reductionism. The assumption that morality is largely a function of biology, particularly the brain. As a quick Amazon search will show you, the number of titles that blithely assert that morality is a function of neuroscientific processes is burgeoning. We have titles, just to name a few, like Matthew Lau's Moral Brains, Gene Desity's The Moral Brain, Joel Rutman's Moral Brain, Moral Bible, Michael Gazaniga's The Ethical Brain, and Lawrence Tancredi's Hardwired Behavior, What Neuroscience Reveals About Morality. One can even find courses on the topic at places like MIT, this is pictured here. Uh, this I believe is a course for the public, like a MOOC, right? Where we discover, if you can read the fine print in the course description, which I have amplified here so you can see it, we discover that moral behavior and moral evaluation are functions of the brain. No nuance, no caveat, right? Just uh, uh, straightforward, stated in a very straightforward manner. We found this assumption to be both pervasive and, as you can imagine, quite problematic. If one assumption concerned the first half of the science of virtue construct, the other concerned the second half, morality. What exactly is morality? That object that science, particularly neuroscience, might set out to study. To riff off a title from Alistair McIntyre, we might ask, whose morality? Which virtue? Which account of moral agency is presumed in these studies? Is it a deontological account of morality? Right? The adherence to a set of rules, and if so, which rules? That are followed in perhaps a Kantian way, right? where there's an inverse relationship between the desire to follow the rule and how we morally evaluate the behavior? 
Or is it perhaps a teleological account where moral actions are instead calibrated by their orientation toward the good or their demonstrated ability to achieve the good? And if so, which good would that be? Or is it an account that necessarily incorporates virtue and character? If so, which ones? Cardinal virtues, theological virtues, acquired, infused. Like I'd, like, I'd love to see an fMRI study of the infused theological virtues, right? Show me how you operationalize that. Or how about the burdened virtues of those who have lived under oppression, as ably articulated by Lisa Tessman? Or maybe an African account of morality, one centered perhaps on an Ubuntu perspective, where the moral agency of the individual is subsumed within a more collective account of agency, where the family or community is the primary locus of moral agency. I could go on, right? But hopefully you get my point. The notion of morality, which the neuroscience of morality might set out to investigate, is very difficult to define. Yet for any valid scientific or clinical research study, we have to have a very, very clearly delineated and defined object of study. One that can be carefully conceptualized and then operationalized using valid scientific tools and methods. Yet this field is burgeoning and some account of morality is in play. So we wanted to try to figure out which one and why. Further complicating this dizzying landscape of morality is the scientific commitment to objectivity. While popular voices in the field deploy the language of morality with abandoned, academic or bench scientists generally try to be very careful to appear morally neutral. In an attempt to be unbiased in their observations and conclusions, most neuroscientific researchers avoid using morally charged language, especially language that hails from religious traditions. Rather, in place of putatively archaic terms like morality or immorality, virtue or vice, or even specific traits like courage or lying, the neuroscience of morality has developed terms that sound more scientific or clinical, such as empathy, or sociopathy, or pro-social or anti-social attitudes and behaviors. These more objective clinical terms are generally derived in two ways. On the one hand, traditional moral terminology and therefore concepts might be subsumed within a larger clinical definition, which is then operationalized for study. Consider, for example, the DSM-5 definition of antisocial personality disorder listed here. In defining this mental illness, the DSM lists the objective criteria on this slide. Intriguingly, the clinical criteria for the psychological condition are largely moral failings, lying, greed, imprudence, intemperance, stealing. Traditional virtue language, or rather the language of vice, is still here, but it's somewhat hidden. Antisocial personality disorder, one might argue, has become a more objective, clinical-sounding proxy for vice. Alternatively, researchers might go the other way. Rather than subsuming the language of virtue and vice into a clinical definition, they abstract from particular accounts of morality to create a more meta-proxy. We see this, for example, in Thomas Meeks and Dilip Jesty's work on wisdom a traditional intellectual virtue. 
In their highly cited work, Meeks and Jesty forward a definition of wisdom seen here on the left that consists of six subcomponents. The wise person exhibits pro-social attitudes and behaviors, pragmatic social decision-making, emotional homeostasis, reflective self-understanding, value relativism and tolerance, and they are effective, able to effectively deal with uncertainty and ambiguity. Each of these subcomponents was derived by abstracting from 10 different studies on wisdom, so this is sort of a meta-study, that were conducted and published by others. For example, their first subcomponent, pro-social attitudes and behaviors, was derived by reading through these 10 studies and choosing five terms that could be considered a pro-social attitude or behavior. These terms were, as you see on the right, the common good, warmth, altruism, knowledge directed at the good for oneself or others, and positive emotions and behaviors toward others or the absence of negative emotions. That was the fifth uh, candidate. These were translated into the meta category of pro-social attitudes and behaviors. But in this process of abstraction, the previous terms are left behind and the concept of pro-social attitudes and behaviors becomes a normative characteristic, a proxy for virtue. But are these equivalent? Warmth, for example, seems substantively and qualitatively richer than the arid clinical pro-social behavior. One could certainly act in a pro-social way without having an iota of warmth, as Kant has taught us. And do these five inputs align with each other? One could certainly pursue knowledge directed at the good for others without any altruism or warmth. In fact, the researchers in two of the five underlying studies here disagree with each other's work and findings. Now we could walk through the same process for each of the proxies for virtue listed on the left. For example, we could go through this whole process for emotional homeostasis and show you how they derive that too. But suffice it to say that this process of abstracting from the substantive meaning of the terms used in the actual studies, which is a move not unique to Meeks and Jesty, results in a series of traits with little conceptual coherency, ciphers that can be filled with multiple and sometimes contradictory meanings. So in addition to biological reductionism and a conceptual muddle around morality, a key finding in our study of the science of virtue is that the traditional notions of virtue and vice and morality in general have been transmuted into proxies, primarily pro-social or antisocial attitudes and behaviors that alternatively presume and or erase much of the content of traditional moral theory, often without acknowledgement. Traditional moral concepts remain in the background and they do a lot of invisible inchoate work, but as we discovered, they're also being recruited toward a different sort of project. But what project? Granted, we were somewhat primed from our preliminary questions about the broader public rhetoric around virtue and vice, but as we dove into the literature on the neuroscience of morality, we kept tripping over economics. Let's go back to that DSM-5 definition of antisocial personality disorder. What might escape casual notice is the way that the DSM-5 subtly weaves into this definition certain forms of economic behavior, conning others for profit, repeated failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor financial obligations, stealing, 
These are key mar markers of this psychiatric condition, this proxy for vice. Here, alongside the earlier concatenation of vices, we find a litany of economic sins. Artfully, here in a single space, neuroscience, morality, and economics are inextricably intertwined. As it turns out, this should not actually be surprising insofar as the majority of clinical studies in the field of the neuroscience of morality, which most of which study proxies for vice rather than virtue, almost unfailingly seek to find correlations between neurofunction, genetics, and socioeconomic status. One of, one of the major, if not the major variable examined in these studies is socioeconomic status. Thus, the longstanding presumption that poverty and vice somehow go hand in hand shapes the neuroscience of morality, which now seeks to find neural signatures of this relationship in the brain. On the other side, on the virtue side, it's a bit more ambiguous. On the one hand, we find that almost all the research subjects in these studies come from higher economic tiers, academics and professionals, psychologists, college students and graduate students. And we could pause for a moment and ask why studies on wisdom might recruit college students as their study populations, but we can talk about that in the conversation. But we also have to ask, who is Meeks and Jesty's person of wisdom here? The person with these characteristics? Again, to gesture to McIntyre, who is this character? Is this a person leading a Black Lives Matter protest? Is it Dorothy Day? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Teresa of Avila? Probably not any of the saints. So who is it? Perhaps, for those of you who have seen Don't Look Up, and if you haven't seen that movie, I recommend that you do, it is Sir Peter Isherwell. Right? The enlightened, evolved being at the harm of the largest, at the helm of the largest global corporation. To cut to the chase, in the end, what we found was that underlying the neuroscience of morality and informing it and directing it is our contemporary political economy and its particular moral anthropology. As should come as no surprise, the moral anthropology, the understanding of the human person, that neuroscience finds in the brain is none other than that of the regnant social imaginary of the 21st century West neoliberal economics. This anthropology, whom we name homo capitalis, the person as capital, is the most recent mutation of economic man. And therefore, not surprisingly, the correlative account of morality offered is entirely and normatively emotivist. The burden of the first half of the book is to demonstrate this thesis in detail. But then we were faced with the second question. Why is neuroscience studying morality at all? What is the significance of the fact that this economized notion of vice, for example, has been embedded via the DSM-5 in a clinical diagnosis, a diagnosis that can be treated with pharmaceuticals? Is this just a contemporary aberration or does it point us to something more significant? To put a fine point on this question, we ask, is the neuroscience of morality just the most recent incarnation of the trend that traces back through behavioral genetics, which I believe is now largely discredited, 
to that field that is, to my astonishment, actually listed in official histories of the neurosciences, phrenology, right? If you look at this, uh, this website here, Milestones in Neuroscience Research is from the University of Washington. And as you see there in 1808, Franz Joseph Gall publishes his work on phrenology. The benefit of historical hindsight makes clear the biopolitical nature of these precursor fields. The ways that science was used to achieve the ends of the polis via interventions on various sorts of bodies. Is the neuroscience of morality an equally biopolitical endeavor? The short answer we argue is yes. Here's our table of contents. In addition to detailing the biopolitical aspirations of the neurosci neuroscientific narrative morality in the first part of the book, in the second half, we trace the intertwined genealogies of neoliberal economics and the emerging disciplines of the cognitive sciences, economics, ethography, and sociology back through the 18th and 19th century figures of John Stuart Mill, Jeremy Bentham, David Ricardo, Thomas Malthus, Joseph Townsend, Daniel Defoe, and David Hume. While many contemporary neuroscientists wish to pair Adam Smith with Hume as their twin forefathers, we complicate that narrative, separating Smith from this story and showing how this trajectory springs rather from Francis Bacon, who retooled science to serve the humanist state politically construed. We can talk more about that genealogy at the end if you'd like. But for our purposes today, situating the neuroscience of morality in this broader context, we argue that as they presume, conceptualize, and operationalize a particular understanding of morality, and then find it scientifically in the brain, the field is forwarding this particular account of morality without recognizing how it is a product of a particular history and social context, a particular economy, a particular vision of society, and a particular philosophical anthropology. As with genetics, eugenics, and phrenology, these socially constructed accounts of morality claim to be grounded via science in our biology, which functions as the ultimate criterion of truth. Once they are grounded on our biology, they can then be wielded as normative to back interventions to make these truths real in the world via human bodies, to augment the moral capacities of the biological haves, eschewing inefficient and largely non-commodifiable interventions like habituation in favor of profit-making moral pharmacologics, or to label those whose neural signatures are biologically non-normative as socially and morally deviant, to be dealt with via other social mechanisms, such as eugenics, residential segregation, or mass incarceration, or to justify the continued deployment of these various forms of biopolitics. Lifting up the biopolitical nature of the neuroscience of morality is important, not only for taking a step back and critically assessing heady suggestions, such as the claim that the neurosciences might one day provide biological targets for a pharmacological approach to violence prevention or biological targets for moral enhancement. It also directs our attention to a final topic that I want to discuss, namely freedom. <clears throat> Those of you who are familiar with the conversations in the neuroscience of morality know that one of the robust debates is whether uh, we can claim any longer that there is anything that one could call free will. If behavior is determined by neural signals, if the writer of reason only reacts after the fact to the elephant of precognitive emotions in Jonathan Haidt's metaphor, 
isn't free will really an illusion? Freedom, of course, is very important for those champions of capitalism, Milton Friedman, for example. So this might seem a confounder for our thesis that the neuroscience of morality simply reprises neoliberalism. But while freedom appears to be essential to classical neoliberalism, our findings complicate this narrative in two ways. We show that with, the 20, with 21st century neoliberalism, economics becomes embedded in our biology in such a way that our choices now may be voluntary in some very fuzzy way, but they are no longer free. At the same time, if we listen carefully to the conversation from Gary Becker and the Chicago School of Economics, back through Friedman and Frank Knight and Mill and Bentham and Malthus and Ricardo and Townsend to Hume, what emerges out of Hume and then is carried forward is a bifurcated anthropology two different anthropologies, one for the economically secure and a second for the poor. By the possession of property, those with economic means have the right to live as rational economic beings, autonomously choosing their own future. They are the subject of freedom. Those without economic means, the poor, because they have no property about which to rationally deliberate, have no freedom. Rather, from the invention of the poor laws subsequent to the enclosure of the commons in the, uh, in the 16th century forward, the poor are those to be controlled via penal methods, via workhouses, via Bentham's panoptic springs of action and more. And as a partial justification for this social control, they are almost to a figure in this tradition, conceptualized as creatures of vice, lazy, unwilling to work, thieving, sexually undisciplined, leading to irresponsible reproduction. It is insofar as these vices threaten the assets of the wealthy that the poor must be controlled through a variety of biopolitical means. Any means, that is, except charity, which rather than relieving their estate, only encourages their vicious behavior and undercuts the common good. Anthropologically, the poor are both vicious and unfree. Moral discourse has served for at least three centuries as a tool for sustaining this unfreedom. We have come full circle to Bill Cunningham. <clears throat> so there you have two questions that led to this project, this odd intertwining of poverty, vice, wealth, and virtue in our cultural rhetoric and the lacuna around embodiment and virtue theory. You have a few findings from our project on the neuroscience of morality, namely a presumption of biological reductionism, an emotivist account of morality, the use of clinical proxies to replace thick traditional moral language, an underlying neoliberal anthropology, the neuroscience of morality as one of the most recent incarnations of biopolitics, and this bifurcated anthropology. So what does this have to do with theology, medicine, and culture? For those of you interested in the neurosciences, I look forward to having a much more in-depth conversation with you after the book is out. But beyond this specific study, we hope that this work presses all scientists and clinicians to begin to query their own disciplines, asking how our broader social imaginaries invisibly shape the way 
we conceptualize our work, what questions we ask, why we ask them, how we study them, and most importantly for people in healthcare, how we conceptualize our patients. We set out in this project with a series of objectives. We met some of them, but there is much more work to be done. We set out to map and analyze US public rhetoric concerning poverty, wealth, and vice and virtue. We did a piece of that, but much more work could be done here. We set out to articulate the relationship between poverty, vice, and wealth and virtue in relevant virtue theories. And again, we've done a piece of that, but much more work could be done here as well. A piece that didn't make it into the book that I've begun to work on, for example, queries the economic substrate of Aristotle's account of virtue. Does his account presume a sociology, per McIntyre, of economically well-off future rulers of the polis? As we know, slaves and women are outside the purview of virtue. Has this originary economizing of virtue filtered down through our tradition, maybe through Aquinas? There are still outstanding questions here, I think that uh, could um, people at Duke Divinity School could work on these um, to all of our uh, benefit. We set out to propose a more thorough account of virtue in light of scientific findings about embodiment. Again, we didn't entirely get to this. I've separately begun to work on this question. In the June issue of the Journal of Society of Christian Ethics, my colleague Corian Mitchell and I are publishing an article analyzing the academic conversation on virtue theory in light of race, trauma, and embodiment. But again, much more work needs to be done here. And finally, we set out to describe the counter traditions of holy poverty and the price of privilege. And this, this section really ended up on the cutting room floor. Given that, one might say, you know, Therese, this is a conversation on theology, medicine, and culture, and we haven't heard too much about theology yet. And you'd be right. My cheeky response to that is that generally in Jeff Bishop's books, as I have said to him, and if you're here, hi, Jeff, uh, most of the theology appears in the last 10 pages, and so it is here. We end with a call to take more seriously the metaphysics that shapes our scientific, scientific and clinical imaginations. And this, if done right, is certainly a theological project. More directly, though, insofar as this book is in large part an attempt to display the metaphysics at the heart of contemporary and clinical, contemporary scientific and clinical research, it is a theological project. More specifically, this book is a theological exercise insofar as it seeks to carefully unmask the hidden role of what Pope Francis calls, quote, the economy that kills. What in the Catholic tradition, both John Paul II and Pope Francis have rightly named an idolatry. Mammon, we argue, is the metaphysics of the day, a master that demands our service. So in the end, a key question for all of us, but particularly our academic and professional disciplines is, how deeply are we enthralled to this master in ways that we may not even know? And the second question that follows is, might the theological alternative be one rooted in a different economy, an economy of charity, caritas, gift, rooted in our understanding of God, Christ, the sacraments, and infused throughout the Christian tradition. That is my next book. In the meantime, let me close with two questions for discussion. 
First, we are coming to increasingly understand how our health systems, our universities, and our clinical specialties are being remade in the image of neoliberalism. You had Bruce Rogers Vaughn on here and last year, I think in this seminar, um, whose work uh, regarding neoliberalism and psychiatry, I think is just masterful. The idol of mammon maps more and more of our existence, shaping our language, our processes, our bodies, hurting our hospitals, hurting healthcare professionals, hurting patients. While we could explore this in each of our specialties, this group specifically needs to ask, how deeply does it shape bioethics? What social imaginary shapes the largely secular bioethics that is the rule of the day at our institutions, particularly its imagination of the moral agent? I'll end with a hot take that the metaphysics of bioethics as it emerged in the late 1970s is essentially the metaphysics of neoliberalism and that it was designed, is that too strong a word? To facilitate the neoliberalization of medicine in the, US, in the United States. <clears throat> this is an extension of a thesis I have advanced elsewhere that bioethics as developed in the US is a form of biopolitics. And if that is the case, how does this require us to rethink how we reframe the interface between theology and bioethics or theology and medicine? And lastly, does our bioethics or does our medicine in general continue to work with a bifurcated anthropology where the wealthy are imagined as free and the poor who are often people of color as unfree and vicious? How, for example, are patients from different socioeconomic locations conceptualized vis-a-vis -vis the language of autonomy, decision-making, freedom, virtue, and vice? How do our hospitals respond differently to such patients? For example, on whom is security called, usually at the drop of a hat? With what moral language do we describe patients whose economic circumstances often undermine conformity with our medical paradigms? patients who are non-compliant with their treatment regimen, who fail to keep appointments, or who through failure to work lack the ability to, to pay for medical care and so forth. We'll end there, but hopefully we have enough fodder here for a robust discussion for the next 20 minutes or so. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Therese, and more than enough, more than enough. This is just, <laughs> more than enough. <laughs> I, I love it. I um, what a wonderful, wonderful talk. Thank you. Um, I have a million questions that I'd love to to jump in with, but first, I'd welcome questions from from the audience. If you wouldn't mind raising your hand, we'll invite you to turn on your video if you're willing, <clears throat> and and ask Lysol a, a question. Well, maybe, uh, okay, great, go ahead, Warren. Thank you, that was, that was an amazing lecture and a lot for all of us to think about. I, I wanna ask a question about psychiatry. So that, that you, you talked about the example of antisocial personality disorder as a way that, that neuroscientific assumptions play out, that virtue gets kind of put into a clinical frame um, that I think does apply to uh, folks often on the economic margins. I really appreciated your highlighting the economic language and the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis. Um, I wanna ask about a different kind of permutation of that through what um, the sociologist Joseph Davis calls the neurobiological imaginary in ways that 
people who often are are um, not necessarily wealthy, but sort of economically secure, will use um, in, in a kind of common uh, way of thinking about mental health, will use neurobiology as a way of, in some ways, externalizing um, unwanted and experiencing behavior away from the self onto the brain or onto the body so as to make it a compartmentalized object of treatment. Uh, that actually may not actually speak directly to virtue and vice, but rather is like a separate clinical issue. That seems to me also profoundly biopolitical, but a little bit different than the way that um, like the personality disorder descriptions, which do kind of still adhere to the self as moral agent are themselves biopolitical. It seems to be two different versions of that. I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Oh, that's very interesting. I'm, I'm making a little few notes here. Um, uh, Right, because there's um, this sort of, in some ways that gets a little bit more to the biological reductionism, right? So there's this biologizing of whatever the problem is, yeah. which which leads to a, a different kind of bifurcation, right? Between the self and the body, maybe I think you're, you're getting at. Um, but I think, you know, so neoliberalism is a, is a multifaceted animal with, with, you know, a finite number, but multiple sorts of planks. And um, in my reading of, of Bruce Rogers Vaughn, who, again, I, 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 in homage to that man, I just think his, his work is really good. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the planks of neoliberalism, first as an economic ideology, but then it becomes a social ideology, is what he calls methodological individualism, right? So methodological individualism is a shift to locate problems in individual people, right? So no longer is are my problems the result of social factors that can be, um, uh, that if that's the root cause, they can be mediated socially. Now the problems are located in me. Um, and now they're, now they're located in my biology, right? So they're located in my brain, which, um, which interestingly, right, gets sort of in this neuro, <clears throat> neurobiological imaginary, gets separated from myself. Uh, so, that seems to me to be like another, so neoliberalism, at least as the people who study this um, argue, it's constantly morphing, right? It's, it's this really agile sort of thing. So this sounds to me like sort of yet another manifestation or permutation of um, uh, the way this imaginary shapes us. Um, and uh, it probably also plays into this or reflects um, this uh, troubling shift where um, the, the moral agent or the person um, as, uh, as we move through the 20th century is imagined as less and less and less free, right? As you move from Milton Friedman to Gary Becker, but now even beyond Becker, um, what we're seeing is that there's this sort of erasure of human freedom because of this biological piece um, that even now we can step, the person is separated and they can step back and they can see their biology controlling them, but they can't do anything about it. Right. So that's would be, I, I'd be interested in reading more about that and fitting that into this yeah, that's story. Very interesting. So anyhow. Thank you. Uh, Great. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for Hey, Therese. Uh, Hi, Far. No surprise. Great lecture. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about this. You, you mentioned there's this working bifurcated anthropology in which those who have property and uh, homo economicus are, 
are are free and and virtuous, and the poor are vicious and um, not free. And I was thinking about the way that in the New Testament, sort of turn a little theological here, um, being virtuous is tightly connected to being free, and being vicious is tightly connected to not being free. And I think about just the, you're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to Christ, one or the other. And to be a slave to Christ is to actually be free. So is, I wondered if the, if you, what your thoughts are on, on how that theological language might help to clarify the way that there's a, not unlike what Jesus encountered is that you have, um, you have a, a kind of identifying vice selectively around the bodily like bodily lack of control so to speak i mean thinking of the poor being driven by sexual inclinations and so on but avoiding the the greater spiritual vices of pride of greed etc but which also make us unfree according to the christian story it seems to me and and de deceived deceptive uh blind and so on yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we wanted to do was, um, you know, as you know, in these fields, a lot of times the same terms are thrown around with really different meanings. And so we miss what's going on behind them. Um, so, you know, and this was, again, one of the things we didn't expect to find when we walked into this conversation. And so it, it took us a while to figure it out. And, um, but I think the Christian tradition, you know, would be a helpful corrective over against what we found. Um, but it seems to me that within, within this trajectory, this 300 year story of capitalism primarily, um, the, on the one hand, the vices have gotten narrowed to basically two, right? Economic vices and sexual vices. And the rest seem to have gone by the wayside. Um, and it's not so much that the vicious are unfree and the virtuous are free, if you, you know, per se. It's that this economic piece is added in as a mediator between those two. So for example, the rich can be as sexually licentious as they want, as long as they don't rep rep uh, reproduce children they can't support economically, right? You know, so it's not vice per se that is freeing and unfreeing. It's that these economized people are free and unfree. And then this virtue and vice language is laid over the top. And it's very specific virtue and vice language, right? So the, you know, the, the rich are independent, work hard and control their reproduction, not their sexuality, but the reproduction. And the poor do the opposite. Um, and so we have to control the poor. Um, a very different conversation, right? Than the New Testament, the most of the Christian tradition. Um, I mean, I think, you know, a really important corrective, you know, we have, I had started working on this, but you know, just didn't, the book was written long, this part didn't get in. Um, but are these counter traditions of where wealth leads to vice and holy poverty, right? Voluntary poverty as a counter narrative to this sort of economizing of the person. Um, you know, where does free, you know, where does freedom come from? Right? Does it come from mammon? Mammon gives us our freedom and gives us our bondage or is that all bondage and freedom comes from elsewhere, right? So I mean, there's theological work going on in this conversation that is below the surface. Um, I think that needs a strong theological corrective.
thank you. Um, well, if no one, all right, I'll, okay. So uh, um, the, I'd love to talk at some point about the, the way that classical virtues are now kind of pro-social characteristics and what that might mean for, I mean, I think in some ways we, we're getting the virtues we deserve as, as a society. Like uh, there's, and there's no immutable list of virtues, right? They're, they're contextually right. dependent, which, which you, were, you were getting at. Um, but, but maybe to, to turn a little more clinical, I wonder to think about, you know, the Aristotelian strand that you, you both lifted up and questioned a bit there toward the end. Um, the magnanimous man, right? The self-sufficient, completely virtuous man is, is the moral ideal. And is that not what medical training seeks to imbue within the physician? Like a kind of mastery of all... Uh, I don't know. I wonder if if the lack of like all the emphasis on work on teams and teamwork is a kind of overt effort that doesn't fully grapple with the substructure of formation toward the magnanimous man. And so you people are talking about you need to be you know team driven and a team player, but really the deep sources of the formation are toward this kind of self sufficiency. Um, that's a wondering. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, um, that would be interesting. I haven't thought about the sort of team self-sufficiency piece, but um, uh, but just sort of querying the traditions that we've inherited, right? So within, you know, I was interested in these questions. I went and looked in the theological literature and all I could find were theological perspectives about economic questions, right? Rather than looking at the economic infrastructure of our theological ideas, right? So the magnanimous man, Aristotle, you know, very important for all of us, you know, 20th century, 21st century, new virtue theorists, da, 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 da. Um, but to be the magnanimous man, you have to have money, right? There are economic presuppositions built into that philosophical and theological account. So if you don't have economic resources, you can't be, you cannot attain that. Now, what does that say about our theory, right? If we accept that and then use that as our model for physicians, yee, right? Um, is this a problem? Why is this a problem? How could it be a problem? How do we get around it? Um, uh, you know, even as you move past the magnanimous man into the sort of contemplative space of, you know, the sort of Aristotelian ideal, there still is this sense that that person's economic needs are taken care of in order to, to be the fullest version of Aristotle's um, you know, ethical person, you have to have ec economic stuff. So if you don't have it, like what does that mean for the theory? And, and how do we correct our theory? If, that, if we do say, oh, that's a problem, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think there's also, um, Theologically, what does it mean to belong well in the body of Christ and the honor given to lesser members within it? I think that, you know, if Christians were to take that seriously, they would, we would display a, a different mode of belonging within our institutional lives as well. Um, right, right. Or who, who norms our imaginations, right? So um, a couple of weeks ago, you had um, Jenny Weiss Block here, right, talking about Paul Farmer, right? So Paul Farmer, I mean, one could argue he's the magnanimous man, right? who gave away, I mean, all his money, right? Did he come with money? 
you know, not so much, right? So a really different relationship with economics embodying this sort of different ideal of the physician. Uh, you know, so what, what's the tradition behind that, of course, liberation theology and certain kinds of Christian claims challenging our model of the physician? Yeah. Um, well, if we uh, began with the invocation of Alan Verhey and end with the invocation of Paul Farmer, I think it's been a good time together. So, um, Dr. Lysalt, thank you so much from all of us thank here you. at the Theology of Medicine Culture Initiative. And I hope all of you attending will look for updates over the summer about our se series next year. Uh, and thank you for launching us into our summer together. Thank you again, Therese. Thank you all for coming and for your attention.